Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. My parents are from India, and like many Asian parents, they encouraged me to become a doctor or an engineer. Except my passion was writing. I enjoyed science, but I wasn't good at math. I gravitated towards journalism around middle school, and here I am today. But what if I had an adult tell me that I could improve at math? Would I still have become a journalist years later? Today we're talking about women in STEM fields. There's been a lot written about encouraging young people into STEM, but now experts say STEAM is just as important. That stands for science, technology, engineering, the arts, and math. Now today we wanted to hear from women in science. How did they get there? And what's their advice for educators and young girls today? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. And as always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Now, coming up, we're going to hear from women who are working in STEM fields. And later, we'll talk with a female high school student who's on track to studying engineering. But first, our next guest started a petition to support women scientists like herself at a time when the importance of science is being downplayed by some politicians. Kelly Ramirez is an American research scientist living and working in the Netherlands, and she's co-organizer of 500 Women Scientists. Kelly, welcome to the show. Hi, Lizzie. Thanks for having me. Tell us about this open letter. Who came up with the idea? What was the catalyst behind it? Yeah, um... Originally, the catalyst was the result of the election, and I was discussing with my friends via text message because I live abroad, and one of my co-organizers, Dr. Jane Zelikova, and I came to the point where we said we wanted to act. We didn't want people to forget their emotions, and so we started a email chain to encourage women to talk to each other about actions we could take to prevent this anti-science discussion or sentiments or to defend science and women in science. And within five days, we had drafted an open letter to unite women in science. And what was the the response? It was overwhelmingly positive from both women in the field, women scientists from around the world, and um, from people who support scientists, people who support women. Um, Across the board, we have received resounding support. We now have, within one week, we had 5,000 women sign from across the world. And in two weeks, just over two weeks, we have 11,500 signatures from almost 90 countries. Now, for those listeners who haven't read this letter, tell us more about what it says and what are some of the commitments uh, that uh, people who've signed uh, have committed themselves to. Yeah, so this is, this is not a petition. Rather, it's an open letter from and to women of science, and it's a pledge that we can make to each other to identify and acknowledge structural inequalities and biases that affect all of us because discrimination, um, lower pay, lower funding rates still persist in our field. So we wanna push for equality, stand up to inequality. Um, We wanna strengthen our within women scientists, give them a higher platform to stand on and do their research. We want to set examples for younger women in the field or high school students or even younger girls who are interested in science 
and show them, foster an atmosphere of encouragement and collaboration. And we also think we can use the language of, of science to bridge the divides that separate societies into enhanced global diplomacy. So it's a really broad range of goals that we have um, identified in the, in the pledge. Now, in the letter, you write that we're living in a, quote, anti-science era. So knowing that, how do you get people on board who may not be scientists, who maybe they weren't good at science when they were in school? They don't see it as something that uh, matters to them in their everyday. How do you get them on board? That's a, a really great question, Lucy. I think it's something that many scientists struggle with and why science communication has really become a main focus over the last five or ten years. I think, for me personally, I like to talk about my own research. I'm a microbial ecologist and I study these tiny little microbes that live in the soil or live on plants or live on us. And while we can't see them, they're just this amazing like diversity of organisms. More microbes in the soil exist than there are stars in the sky, right? So it's like this really cool world we can explore. If we want to explore new worlds, why not just explore what we have on Earth? And a lot of science, not just my own field, but a lot of other areas of science offer this, like this whole exploration world. And that's how I like to kind of introduce people into science. Now, you mentioned that um, you're an ecologist. So how did you get into that? Who were your mentors? And as a young girl, is this something that you knew that you were always interested in science? Or did you get into it later in life? I got, I got into it in my college career. Um, I really enjoyed learning, and I was, I was, I, I was good in science. Um, and so my, my high school teachers and my family encouraged me to follow, follow my scientific uh, my career. And in college, I thought maybe I'd go to medical school, but I had this amazing um, mentor, Dr. Charlotte Omoto, who she was my advisor. And I, if I wanted to stay with her as my advisor, I had to stay in biology and not in the med program. And I actually stayed in biology because of her and started taking ecology courses. And from there, um, I ended up in Colorado where I had another mentor, Dr. Diana Wall, who was also a wonderful female role model. So for me, I've been very lucky to have women, these strong women scientists in my life to show, sh kind of show me the way. And is that the key to encouraging young girls today to be interested in the science fields? I think that is one major key. Um, for me, that was that was a really big point, but also encouragement from the men in science, too. Many of my mentors have also been men. My supervisor in Colorado, Dr. Noah Fear, was a great mentor. So I think it's a positive um, feedback from all sides. Um, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Kelly Ramirez, American research scientist living and working in the Netherlands, co-organizer of 500 Women Scientists, an open letter um, encouraging uh, a support network first for women scientists, but also to encourage more to get involved in the sciences, to understand the importance of science in our world today. Uh, thousands have signed on to this pledge. We're going to hear from some um, scientists and, and people, women in the STEM field later in our hour. Um, but I was curious, too, when you you mentioned in the letter, you know, talking about some of the barriers that still exist for women in science fields. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I think there are a number of obvious barriers, so outward discrimination, sexism, racism that women that women may face. But there's also these um, hidden or subconscious biases that are more embedded in our, our social psyche. So women maybe are thought of not to be as good at math and science. And these aren't verbalized all the time. It's more something that is just embedded in, in people's um, 
subconscious. And so we have to fight it, come at that at multiple levels. And I think bringing it to the surface and making it an open discussion is really important for that. I've heard that, you know, over the last several years, um, uh, women in STEM fields has been growing. Um, there's still, um, you know, less women working in, say, computer science or, or engineering. But is this something, um, you know, you're working in the Netherlands. I'm curious about the science community abroad and, and how they work with young people um, to be interested in, in the career that you're following. I think I think it's a challenge in, across the globe. While some countries may be better than others at it, um, it's still a challenge in, in most places, because even if at the high school level, up women are, girls are encouraged to follow, go into science, at the higher levels, when you become a professor, there are fewer women role models. There are fewer women in those positions still. So you have less examples or people to turn to that would have the same concerns or same challenges that you face. And so that's, that's a slow process and something I think um, many institutions are working at to address. So what's next for you? Again, uh, 500 women scientists, uh, this open letter got a lot of attention worldwide. Uh, what are you planning? Yeah, we're, we're really excited about um, the community that has been building. We want to form a strong network. So w- start linking these women who have shown support because I think that's something we want to have a discussion between the women scientists. And then we want to give them resources and either mentoring, mentoring options or professional training options that could give them a platform to increase their role in science. And we also want to focus outward, not just on our own community um, of scientists, but on our communities at home, those people who may be science is not so easily uh, approachable. And how can, we, how can we interact with people who are, are fearful of science or think that science is not for them? And that's, that's another big focus of 500 Women Scientists. Kelly Ramirez. Kelly Ramirez, rather, joined the show by phone from the Netherlands, where she works as a research scientist, co-organizer of 500 Women Scientists. Thank you so much for joining us, Kelly. And for our listeners who want to read that letter, where can they go? They can go to 500womenscientists.org. And coming up, what leads some women to science fields? What advice do they have for female students? Is there really a gender gap in the sciences? We'll find out more after the blip, after the break. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Educators and industry leaders say American students are lagging behind in math and science. It's one of the factors behind STEM, helping students improve their skills in science, technology, engineering, and math, and encouraging them to pursue careers in those fields. In 2016, have the sciences become more welcoming place for women? We have three women joining the program now who work in STEM fields. First in studio, Rachel Felberbaum, Senior Director of Business Development at Protein Sciences Corporation in Meriden. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Now also joining us from the studios of Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, is Holly Rushmeyer, Professor in the Yale Department of Computer Science. Holly, welcome to where we live. Hi. And then on the phone joining us is Heather Beekle. She's a postdoctoral scholar in the Department of Immunology at the University of Pittsburgh. Heather, welcome to the show. 
Hi, Lucy. Now you can join the conversation too, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. And I wanted to um, speak to the women um, that are on the show now about what first sparked your passion for science and, and engineering. And I'll start with Rachel, who's in studio with me. Okay, well, I would say um, it took me a while to figure out where uh, to come to where I am today. But uh, the original spark was really probably late in high school. And it goes back to a, a wonderful teacher I had. It was a chemistry teacher in high school who was just clearly passionate about what he did and made it fun. And um, ironically, at the time, my biology teacher was less enthusiastic. And I actually got very turned off to biology, which, um, as you now know, I am a molecular biologist, but I went on to get my doctor in molecular biology, so um, it took me a while to figure all of this out. But that teacher in in high school was fantastic. And then ultimately, um, as I navigated my way through my career path, um, when I got introduced into the biotech pharma sector and really saw all the amazing things that were being created and done to improve health and 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 I just wanted to be a part of that. And so that's really what ultimately then sparked me in the direction I'm I'm now. And remind us, I know some of our listeners know about protein sciences. Tell tell yes. us about the work happening there. Yeah, so protein sciences is a really exciting company um, dedicated to using modern technology to make uh, safer and better vaccines. So we're really focused on next generation vaccines. And um, we're fortunate that we have one um, product already on the market now since 2013. It's called FluBlock Influenza Vaccine, and it's a pure protein-based vaccine. So a little bit about vaccines is that vaccines are traditionally made by growing a live pathogen. Um, in the case of flu, it would be an influenza virus grown in a chicken egg. Um, and and th- that technology has served us well for many, many years. But there's there's new technology that can be used to improve upon that, and that's what we're doing. We're the only vaccine made without growing a live flu virus. We're free of eggs, and it's just the pure protein you need for protection. And we have exciting data really coming out showing that in clinical studies that not only is the safety really good, but it's actually working um, better in some cases than, than the traditional flu vaccines. And um, leading to less cases of flu and less cases of hospitalization, and um, we're you know we're just excited to be be a part of that. Um, so for Rachel, it was an inspirational teacher in high school that yeah. took you on this path. Um, I'll turn to Holly now, who's joining us again from the studios at Yale University. Um, what led you into uh, computer science? Uh, well, that's quite a long story. In high school, I was uh, interested in everything. I was in medical explorers, future teachers, youth court. And my father, who is an engineering professor, pointed out that the subjects I did well in and enjoyed were a good background for engineering. And uh, so uh, I went to took his advice and went to engineering school and loved it. Um, all my degrees are in mechanical engineering and really... Up until sometime in the mid-'80s in grad school, I was pretty squarely mechanical engineer. And from the late-'80s to mid-'90s, I sort of drifted into computer science, uh, working in computer graphics. And I loved it, so that's what I'm doing. And um, tell us about when you were studying it. Um, Did you feel like you were on equal footing with uh, the male students? Yeah, Actually, I did. I lived in a very supportive environment. Uh, I mean, not only did my parents encourage me to go to engineering school, but I, I lived at home the first couple of years. 
and it was in my hometown. I had gone to classes and so forth there um, before starting college, so it was an extraordinarily comfortable experience. And then I'll turn to Heather Beekle, who's at the University of Pittsburgh. Tell us about your path uh, into the sciences. So uh, it took me a little while to figure out that I was interested in science. I waited until I was 21 to go back to college, and I started out at the community college because I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do or what I was good at. And um, at the community college here, I had a great experience. I had a lot of really good teachers there, and I realized that I was good at science, um, and it was more a matter of figuring out which science I wanted to stick with. Um, and so I got a, an associate's degree at community college. I transferred to a four-year school, Duquesne University. Um, and there I had, again, a lot of really good science teachers. Um, Dr. Trun uh, was the microbiology teacher at Duquesne, and I loved her teaching style and so decided to stick with biology. Now, before we go to some calls, you know, we've been hearing that, you know, there is a, a gender gap um, when we think about women working in science or STEM fields. Is that gender gap overblown? I'm curious what our, our guests think. I'll start with Rachel. So I think in the biological sciences, there are more women than maybe in other areas of science. Um, I think there, you know, in terms of the healthcare fields and, and where you kind of intersect uh, it does have a strong appeal for women as well. So I know at Protein Sciences, we have a good representation of women there. But I can tell you, um, and this is not just for science, but also for business, um, when I get out in the field and I go to conferences and I look out at who's there and I see a sea of men. And um, it, you know, there's women and, and we're rising in the ranks, but you can't fight the fact if you go on kind of the big company pages and you look at the senior management team, you're still going to see it very much male dominated. And so, you know, I'm hopeful that that we're continuing this trend of really introducing women more into senior leadership positions um, and, and in the sciences and, and really creating a more um, ba uh, balanced workplace. So why do you think that is when you go to these conferences and the presenters are all men? Is it just that women, um, that we need to do a better job of being more aggressive to get, you know, our name and our work out there? Yeah, so I think I think there's definitely a communication difference, right, between women and men and that this is, is really a key. And so there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with either style. But because we are now women breaking into something that's male-dominated, you have to learn to communicate to both groups of people. And so women, you know, where men might tend to be um, more assertive and may take more credit for, for accomplishments that not only that they achieved, but that their teams achieved, women tend to say, share share the credit, which is, which is a very nice trait. But however, however, Sometimes when men perceive that, it, it might be viewed as, oh, well, she didn't really do so much herself, or, or what does she really have to offer? And so that's just one example of things where, where I think by, um, by kind of adopting, not that women have to be men. I love women's styles. I think there's so much to offer. But you have to know when and where to use which style. And the more successful you can be at communicating to both groups, I think the more you'll be able to, to move up and be successful. 
I'll turn to Holly. Um, again, you're a professor in the Yale Department of Computer Science. Um, in terms of the communication differences that Rachel was mentioning, um, what do you see among your students and among your career as a computer science scientist? Uh, well, I see a, a huge diversity. Um, I uh, both, you know, uh, on faculty and in students and in my colleagues, uh, but. Uh, overall, I would have to say that uh, in students, while there are some extraordinarily confident young women, I, I do see uh, more um, lack lack of confidence about whether they should be doing this, uh, whether uh, they belong there, and you know, honestly, I don't I don't know where that comes from, but uh, it is it is uh, uh, something I see. And what about the the gender gap, Holly? Uh, I recently interviewed uh, Dr. Freeman Rabowski III. He's the president of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And he told us during our conversation that the number of women majoring in computer science today is, in fact, lower than it was just a few decades ago. Let's hear what he had to say. Most people don't realize that there has been a 50% decline in the percentage of women majoring in computer science in America. In the, in the 80s, we had gotten to about 36% of all computer science majors were women. Today, we are down to 18, between 18 and 20%. In other words, only about two in every 10 computer science majors in America will be women. And yet, the country needs many more people educated in these fields. What do you think about that, Holly? What trends have you noted, and, and what's a, a better way to encourage more people into the computer sciences? Um, well, for one thing, I'm very glad you had that quote. It's it's really a strange phenomena that, uh, and uh, the, the the numbers I've seen though that are are that we are back on the upswing, but I don't understand why the huge drop, and and you know so in part I, since I don't know why the huge drop, I don't know how to fix whatever happened, but I think uh, to uh, just to uh, encourage women that if you enjoy this, you belong here. Um, I think there's been too much, oh, well, if you're at the top of the class, you should be doing this, and it doesn't really matter if you're at the top or the middle or wherever. Um, it's whether you enjoy doing it is, is, I think, the critical factor about whether you belong, whether you should stick with it. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking to women in STEM fields, women who uh, have a spark and, and realize that the science field is where they belong. And we're speaking with uh, Rachel Felberbaum, who studied molecular cellular development. Is that right? Yep. Molecular <laughs> biology, cellular and developmental biology. Holly Rushmeyer, who's a computer scientist, professor at the Yale Department of Computer Science, and Heather Beekle, who's a postdoctoral scholar in the Department of Immunology at the University of Pittsburgh. Before we hear more about uh, their careers, I wanted to take some calls. Uh, Jessica is calling from Hebron. Jessica, you're on the show. Hi. So tell us your comment or question. Well, I'm, uh, I'm one of the moms on the front lines because I've got a sixth grade girl fighting this fight. Um, so I just, I noticed that in fourth grade, um, and I have two older sons, and my husband's an engineer, and um, I do work with, um, uh, in social science research, but I'm not in the math side, because I also had the same kind of, you know, hey, math is hard, you don't want to take hard classes, right? Um, but she came back in fourth grade and started saying, I, I hate math. I hate it. I hate it. And my husband and I were, and myself especially, were just kind of dumbfounded. Why would you say you hate something that she seemed to do very well in? 
Um, and we've noticed that a lot in the girls her age. They do say things like, it's hard, it's boring, I don't like it. Um, but we, you know, we've, we've kind of put a hard line in the sand and said, you know what, we're not, you're not, you can say that all you want, but it's not reality. Look what you can do. And we push her. We push her to stay focused on those things. And it's, it's tough. But, you know, I think it's working because in, she's in sixth grade and she is one of the top performing. Actually, one of her teachers has said she's the top performing female in her class. Um, and so there is a big difference. What girls are thinking about themselves when it comes to, to math and science at this level already, it starts so young. It starts fourth grade, you know. And um, if you let them keep saying those things, it's very hard to turn it around. Um, I'm so happy to hear that you guys are doing this show, and we and we do a lot of. I, I'm going to make her listen to this, the whole thing. I can get a podcast of it because um, I think she needs to hear, and I think all girls her age need to hear that there are women out there doing this work and loving it, enjoying it, and maybe they didn't always love it. Um, I wonder sometimes if this self-talk, you know. I, I believe, really, from my own experience, is self-talk is it's not really coming from the men in their lives. It's coming from the other women. I see this so often. I feel like um, the moms are bringing their, um, their own negative self-talk to their daughters. And if their daughter comes home and says, oh, math is boring or I hate it, they're saying, oh, that's right, honey, I didn't like it either. You know, let's focus over, over here on, on the other side, you know, on English and writing and those things. Um, so I just, it really worries me that the self-talk happens that early, and I don't know what we can do. What I would love to see is more women featured in the media. I mean, how, how is it that, you know, we didn't know about Hamilton and her code until this year? You know, how, I never, had never heard of her before. And how, and how are those stories getting swept under the rug? Why are we not pushing it out there? And you guys are doing that now with this show, and... I really I appreciate it. And, I mean, one question I have is, and I, I'm not a developmental psychologist or psychiatrist, so I don't know anything about this, but I see that girls really outperform boys in school. And I'm wondering if everything else is so easy for them that when they come to a challenge in math or science that they feel like, well, this is hard, so I must not be good at it, not this is a challenge, so I'm going to enjoy it and work on it and, and keep going. But I really applaud you guys for doing this show, and, and I just I would love to see more of, you know, women just showing girls this age, hey, it's hard. It may be hard, but that doesn't mean it's not fun or enjoyable, and it doesn't mean you can't do it. Well, thank you, Jessica. I'm going to direct uh, some of your, your questions to our guests. Let me start with Heather Beekle, because I know, um, Heather, um, not only are you, you know, you're studying uh, at the University of Pittsburgh, you're also a mom. And I'm curious what you think about when you, when you look at your girlhood and, and how um, you were encouraged or not encouraged during that time. Yes. Yeah, so I think this is the, the big thing, like uh, when girls, more so than boys, uh, are challenged, they seem to feel like um, they're just not good at it. But I think it's more of a perspective thing than a capability thing. And so we kind of, um, we want girls or we train girls to feel like, you know, we need to be able to do everything 
perfectly and easily. And and when we run into challenges or when we run into places where we're wrong, um, that that's bad and, and we need to stay away from things like that. Where if we were teaching kids, boys and girls, both when they're young, that being wrong is okay and that's still a way to learn something and that doesn't mean that you're stupid or or not capable of understanding. It just means that you need some help to figure something out, you know, rather than it being the end of the world. I don't want to do this because I'm not good at it. I just need some help to figure out that I can do it. And so it's, it's, I think to me, totally more perspective than ability. And Rachel, what do you think? Yeah, well, I I completely agree with what was said. I think um, what's also really important is how we teach these things and making it interesting for both genders, right? So if if you're teaching science and and you're using, um, you know, the application of robotics, say, and that, that will speak to so many boys and girls, but not to everybody. And so I think also there's this perspective, oh, I don't like robotics. I don't like, you know, studying space. I don't, you know, so that's not so interesting. But if you can apply, I mean, math and science can be applied across the board. And if you find ways to introduce science in in areas that, say, speak to some more young girls, I think that's where they can see it. I mean, it's involved in cooking. It's involved in um you know, you could say in, in fashion even, you know, like designs and shapes. And I mean, you can really introduce science almost anywhere. For me, it was the chemistry and it was like making magic. It was like a magic show, you know, mixing solutions and making. I remember there was one experiment called a gold glittering shower. And I liked seeing all the gold sparkle, you know, and it was really exciting to, to create that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, it's just using all these these ways of, of how can you get this how can you apply science to areas and show that it is part of lots of things that you do like to do? And then you spark the interest. And And I want to uh, mention that I, I, w- I had the privilege of being part of um, Congresswoman Elizabeth Estes' STEM Advisory Board this last year. And she's doing a great job really trying to help get um, STEM initiatives for young girls. And um, it was a great group of people. And I know there there's programs out there that are going into the schools and are really trying to um, excite girls and boys. But um, there is a focus on getting more girls involved at a young age because I think it's important to excite them young. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I want to take a couple more calls before we go to break. Um, And I wanted to take Steve from Guilford. Is he still there? Oh, there's Steve from Guilford. Steve from Guilford, you're on the show. Yes. Okay, so I do have a daughter, too, and I have a son, and they're both young, and they're both in the elementary grades. And uh, uh, similar to what your last last caller said was uh, it's pretty much over by fourth grade when it comes to math skills. The attitudes are already shaped, and uh, kids are – most kids, whether they're male or female, don't survive it. And the main reason we have that um, is – that we don't roll out math to kids in elementary grades at the rate we should be rolling out to them. Uh, by the time they hit fourth grade, they're, they're, they're already beginning to struggle. They go up to fifth grade, and they're, they're seeing they're farther behind, and their attitudes are really shaped by then. So um, the, the same thing we could do for girls would also help boys and vice versa. Uh, first of all, we have to have math teachers in the elementary grades. Right now we only have general study teachers teaching math. However, we have music teachers, 
we have Spanish teachers, we have gym teachers, and we have art teachers in elementary grades. But there's not one math teacher uh, uh, in public schools in the state of Connecticut. And in the city of Guilford, uh, the town of Guilford, uh, you know, we, we, we have a great education system, but there, too, we don't have any math teachers in, in grades one through four. We have general study teachers. We have uh, female teachers that have a degrees in psychology or communication trying to teach math to boys and girls. And that, that's not a good recipe for uh, uh, encouraging kids to go into math. The reason why I talk math mostly at that level is because it's, uh, the sciences are, are, are even weaker. In, in the elementary grades. It's hard to encourage kids to go into science, especially if they can't do the math. Mm-hmm. So I encourage uh, the school, the, uh, the, uh, the district, to, to do more math with kids at younger ages. However, we're, we're met with a lot of administrative and faculty uh, uh, negativity that uh, we're meeting statutory requirements. We don't need math teachers in grade four. We don't need them in third grade. They'll, they'll get a real math teacher when they go to fifth grade. Our administrators in Guilford, um, uh, while they're very nice people and very capable at many things, uh, one thing they're not is they themselves are not math people. They're not scientists. Our, our superintendent has a seventh grade or less math education and his own, says he doesn't remember eighth grade algebra or anything higher than that. So therefore, he's got a, he's got a seventh grade or less math education. He's not a scientist. So, uh, so Steve, it sounds like you're saying that um, if we want both boys and girls to do better in math and science, we need to start very early and not wait until uh, the, the middle grade. So thank you for um, your call. And uh, real quick, uh, Donna from West Hartford's on the line. Donna, you're on the show. Hi, uh, Lucy. Thank you so much for having me on. A few quick plugs. Um, I am, my name's Donna Hagiga, and I'm the chair of Connecticut Tech Savvy. We are going to be having our fourth one-day workshop for girls, sixth through ninth grade, to inspire them to STEM, and it's going to be on Saturday, March 4th at Trinity College. It's a program of AAUW and Trinity College, and we've gotten uh, generous funding from the Pettit Family Foundation. And what's unique about this program is it's not only hands-on workshops for the girls, but there's also a parallel track for parents and educators to help them to keep their girls inspired and also help them to navigate the whole college process, because often we are getting girls who will be the first ones in their families uh, to go to college, and so we help them navigate that as well. The other thing that we do with the program is really um, help the girls to realize that we need them in science, technology, engineering, and math to help solve problems that so far we haven't had a female voice involved in, such as technology, medical equipment, and so forth. We need women to be involved in these things to be able to give a female perspective as well. And finally, AAUW National, uh, which stand, used to stand for American Association of University Women, has wonderful knowledge uh, about why there are so few women in sciences. I know the professor that you mentioned from University of Baltimore, um, he probably was getting a lot of his research from AAUW. So if you go to aauw.org, you can get a lot of national research on why there are so few women in the sciences. All right, Donna. Well, thank you for that information. We'll try to put that up on our website, too. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, we're talking about women in STEM fields. We have women on the line in studio to talk about what sparked their interest in science. And we want to hear more about work-life balance, as well as some barriers and challenges in the profession. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We know many of you tune in to Where We Live on your car radio or stream us live at our website, WMPR.org. But if you can't listen live mornings at 9 or evenings at 7, you can subscribe to Where We Live on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any podcast app. Now, coming up on Thursday, Power Politics Mafias. On the next Where We Live, we'll take a global look at organized crime with Dr. James Cocaine. His new book is called Hidden Power. Now, today we're talking about what leads women into science fields and how young women could be encouraged to do so. In studio with me is Rachel Felberbaum, Senior Director of Business Development at Protein Sciences Corporation in Meriden, Connecticut. From Yale University Studios in New Haven is Holly Rushmeyer, who is professor in the Yale Department of Computer Science. And on the phone, Heather Beekle, postdoctoral scholar in the Department of Immunology at the University of Pittsburgh. And before we take a couple more calls, I wanted to ask um, our women... Um, that are in studio and joining us by phone. You know, how did you balance work and, and life? Because uh, we know that, um, especially as our lives get busier and how some of us choose to have children, it gets tough. And when you're in a, a high-demand environment, you know, how do you, how do you balance it all? I'll start with Rachel. Yeah, so, I mean, that's something that I'm, I'm constantly working on. So I have um, two young sons, seven and four, and a husband, and uh, very, very happy. So I'm definitely navigating all of this. And, um, you know, I, I think, so for me, I ended up, um, just a little background, doing undergraduate in psychology. Um, took four years in between undergraduate and graduate school as I kind of shifted my focus and ultimately went back to graduate school for molecular biology, got my doctorate. And then um, after that, um, decided uh, to, to leave the lab bench work and joined Protein Sciences um, in the capacity I am now. So um, I ended up uh, getting married before graduate school, and then we had our first child while I was still in graduate school. And so that kind of started shaping things for me a bit. I think uh, when I had originally chosen psychology um, back in undergraduate, it was really geared around work-life balance. One of the major factors was uh, this vision I had of of being a psychologist and, and working out of my home, having a home office part-time, being a mother, but having plenty of time for my children. And that really shaped that field. And And so what happened is I enjoyed studying psychology and at the end of college realized I didn't want to actually practice it. And so really found myself left uh, a little, you know, dazed and confused about where to go. And so I had, had joined a biotech company and got introduced into that field and got very inspired into the to, to move that direction and really wanted to be a part of the science and creating new technologies and new medicines. And that's what motivated me to go sh- switch directions and go back to graduate school. So I think at that point, the focus of what what's really, um, what do I want to accomplish professionally took over from the work-life balance. But then as I got through graduate school and I had my first child and I, we bought a house and I had a mortgage. And so I was coming out the other end and I realized, um, you know, that that while being, uh, you know, in a lab and doing bench work was was it was fun and I enjoyed it. Um, it's also more demanding and keeps you out um, home. I mean, when you're doing your work, it, it can't be done from home. Mm. It has to be done in lab. And so that was a big reason why I decided to leave um, what I call bench work, move back into industry, but in a more mobile capacity. And so now, business development is a great blend for me of of the science and the business, but be giving me the flexibility with my kids. And what about you, Holly? Um, I, I don't, I haven't had that, uh, you know, 
definite uh, a strategy. We sort of I've sort of taken things as they come. I got uh, married uh, a long time ago as an undergraduate, and I think the main thing is my husband and I have shared beliefs and goals, and so we've made a lot of changes as the world around us has changed. But uh, we've always, you know, we've we've always made decisions based on having um, sh- shared beliefs and goals. And so I've had um, a lot of different jobs, and, and so is he, and we went back to school after being out for a while, but uh, always a, a joint decision. And I think, you know, that's the, I guess, if there's any major theme, it's, you know, having shared principles and then making decisions based on those. Supportive spouse always helps. Um, Heather, how about you? What's uh, helping you as you're, again, a postdoctoral scholar at the University of Pittsburgh in uh, the Department of Immunology? Right. So sometimes I do worry that I'm the antisocial mom. Um, I I usually, I take my son to wrestling practice twice a week, and he's five, so he's just starting out in the school sports kind of thing. Um, but I will usually bring my computer and do work while he's practicing. And so I spend less time socializing and, and I kind of worry that I'm not balancing things the right way. But the wonderful thing about being in academia is that I do have a fairly flexible schedule. Um, if I want to take some time to do things with my son at school, I can go into work later and stay later or go in early and leave early. You know, I'm, I'm in an environment where as long as my work gets done, um, I'm kind of free to come and go. And so uh, I really value that flexibility. So flexibility is key. Now, we're talking with women who have uh, you have careers in the STEM fields. We wanted to hear from a student who's interested in the STEM fields. And uh, Madeline Monahan is joining us now. She's president of the engineering team at Laurelton Hall um, in Milford. And she's also competing in a Sikorsky STEM challenge. Uh, Madeline, welcome to the show. Hi. So we understand that you're interested in engineering. Tell us about uh, where that spark came from. Yeah, so our school um, is in Milford, Connecticut, founded by the Sisters of Mercy, and um, we take um, a different approach to science than other schools. Um, We have physics first, so all freshmen take physics as their foundation, which helps a lot with math and algebra and geometry. So I think that in itself um, helps students pursue or want to pursue degrees in STEM fields. Um, a lot of people go on from our school to um, major in mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, um, those types of engineering. We have a lot of um, new programs at our school. We have an AP computer science program that just started this year. And I co-founded the engineering club my sophomore year. And this year we were accepted into um, the Sikorsky STEM challenge. And we were the only all-girls team out of the nine teams. So it's a prestigious year-long program that, helps us solve a real-life engineering problem. Like with real guidance from Sikorsky and Yukon mentors, we design a fly-by-wire electromechanical control system for um, a helicopter, which is really cool because we get to employ and develop 21st century skills um, as we face the various challenges throughout the school year. Well, I think it's great to hear that uh, we have a, a high schooler, a female high schooler who's interested in engineering. Um, and we thank you, Maddie, for giving us a little bit of perspective on your school and, and what sparked your interest. No problem. And I want to take another call. Uh, Jonathan's been holding from New Britain. Jonathan, you're on the show. 
Uh, yes, hi. Thank you for uh, for taking my call. Um, I'm actually a uh, an undergraduate psychology student at the University of Hartford, and sort of, you know, and I'm in one of those fields, you know, like social sciences haven't really been, you know, accepted as, you know, really like the, as part of like the STEM field, um, despite all we've sort of done for, um, you know, to try to like you know, compete and, you know, and do research, you know, like the so-called hard sciences. Um, but even, even in my field where, you know, there's, it's very much female dominated, um, once you get into sort of like that research, um, that research level, a lot of um, a lot a lot of the, uh, the the you know female contributions seem seem to drop off a lot. It seems very male dominated, at least from my perspective. Um, so I'm sort of wondering, you know, like what what everyone's thoughts were about um, you know sort of like social sciences and their um, and their place in sort of like the STEM like with the STEM fields, as well as, you know, like even, you know, like I said, we have difficulty getting females into research um, in, in our fields, despite being very female dominated at the lower levels. Like, you know, how do we, how do we convince or sort of like prepare, you know, and get more women into, um, you know, into, into research roles? All right, Jonathan, thank you for that. That's a good question. Uh, Heather Beekle, do you want to take that one? <laughs> um, well, I think that creating an environment where where these positions are uh, marketable and uh, accommodating to women's schedules, uh, you know, anybody, anyone's schedule, I think really in any field, if you're um, if you're trying to, bring people and move them up, um, you have to, there has to be some kind of, like we were, we've been talking about work-life balance um, to make these positions available for all the people who would be good for filling them. And I wanted to then turn to Rachel, because you talked about this a little bit earlier, about how you had to make that switch from working in, in the lab to a different job, even though your science is still your passion. Um, you know, what's your take, again, you, on getting and seeing these women in these higher roles, in these research roles? Yeah, so I think, um, I think you know, what, what Heather was saying, too, the flexibility is key. And, and that was a big motivating factor for me, because I've, I felt, and, and I think it's held up, that... Um, that that by being by not being tied to a lab by being able to be more mobile it's given me more flexibility um interestingly with psychology because i do have some experience because my undergraduate was also in psychology and i did do some research in psychology and and it was interesting because i think what appeals to women in psychology at least from my perspective was was the kind of the helping people aspect and it really overlays with why so many women are interested in healthcare and when then you make the jump to to um, the research side, I know for me, I got frustrated that that the research seemed at that point at least um, disconnected to me to the practice. So that we were, I was studying at that point what are pure forms of different types of therapy, cognitive therapy versus psychodynamic therapy, and, and to me, in in, a, in practice, people actually use a blend. And so I think again, it's it's about speaking. You know, making the connection for people and and then balancing that with the flexibility. So can can women do they have opportunities to do the research and then also help in the way that maybe that that appeals to them? And so 
So creating that balance, I think, could could help. And we're almost out of time, but I wanted to turn back to the Holly Rushmire. She's a professor in the Yale Department of Computer Science. You know, Holly, we heard earlier from um, an individual who says that, you know, we need to be start teaching math and science from at an early age. Don't wait until fourth, fifth grade. Uh, we're talking about pre-kindergarten. Uh, do you see that as a, as a, a way to, to change this trend of, of the U.S. Uh, falling behind other countries? Oh, definitely. Um, I, I, I feel... I feel uh, Sad. I mean, I have postdocs and and graduate students, and very rarely do I have uh, one that you know uh, grew up in the U.S. Either uh, they don't uh, get the background, or they leave uh, to go to industry before going to graduate school. Um, and but I yeah I think even it's not just to get people to go into STEM, but everybody needs to have basic math and science skills for decision making for life to be a responsible citizen to live a full life, and you know starting uh, children out early in in activities where you you know you learn how to figure things out, how to estimate things. I grew up in a household where my dad graphed everything, like measuring plants and like how much did it grow this week and how, you know, how tall are you? And, you know, just learning interweaved into life, uh, basic math and science. That's a great tip. Thank you so much, Holly Rushmeyer, again, professor in the Yale Department of Computer Science. Also, Rachel, Rachel Felberbaum, who works as Senior Director of Business Development at Protein Sciences. Great to have you join our conversation. And Heather Beekle, postdoctoral scholar in the Department of Immunology at the University of Pittsburgh. Thank you for joining us today, Heather. Thanks for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for our producers, Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson, and technical producer, Kion Wolf. Continue this conversation on our Twitter and Facebook, at Where We Live. Thanks for listening today.